Podcast One. Marks Acosta Rubio started one of the fastest growing companies in America, only to lose it all. He then bought it back and made it even bigger and better. This is a story of rags to riches to rags to riches. Buckle up for a roller coaster ride in episode 495 of the award winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. Yeah, I say, welcome to Small Business Marketing Show, where successful small business owners share their souls to take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Tim Welcome back to your weekly dose of marketing ups and downs. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, you, infinitely more importantly, you're a motivated business owner ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that's exactly what we do around here. Plus, even better, you can join our free Facebook group for some ongoing accountability and support. All you need to do is search for the Small Business Big Marketing Tribe on Facebook. Big episode today, Decker millionaire. Yes, Decker. That means he's got tens of them. Marks Acosta Rubio shares how he's built a life and business he loves after being raised in the slums of Venezuela. The penny drops for this week's Monster Prize Draw winner around how to personalise their marketing. I get my back up following an email I received from the host of an Airbnb I stayed at recently. Plus, I'll let you in on next week's guest, who's the creator of an app you need if you want to be better engaged with your precious customers. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Marks Acosta Rubio went from the slums of Venezuela to starting One Stop, which is a company that makes $30 million in annual revenues selling print cartridges. Isn't that amazing already? Now, like most business success stories, Marks's journey hasn't been without its hurdles. Big hurdles, going from rags to riches to rags to riches again and again. So in this very, very honest and open chat. Marx shares how he's made millions of dollars through cold calling, how he made a fortune hiring a cocaine addict, not once, but twice, how he's cleverly found a point of difference in a very crowded marketplace, and how he bounced back after losing everything. Really good story, this one, and Marx is a great storyteller. I started off by asking him to describe his life growing up in the slums of Venezuela. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, it depends. Do you want me to talk about the mobster dad and the sort of drug-afflicted lesbian mother or talk about the poverty or talk about the richness? Like, you got to kind of be more specific. Well, I didn't know it was such an embarrassment of riches when it came to choosing which part of your Venezuelan life we should talk about. Okay, let me give the context to that question is, I want my listeners to get a sense of what you've come from, because we're going to be finishing with where you are now, and it's vastly different. Very much so. So, you know, it's, it's somewhat embarrassing talking about your story, whether it's rags to riches to rags to riches again, because, you know, I find it boring and I find it 
somewhat sort of lackluster. But suffice it to say that I grew up in Caracas, Venezuela from age zero to about seven. And my mom left my dad because based on the previous answer, he was a mobster and she was a lesbian drug addict. And this is now 1976, right? I'm 50, so you can imagine mm-hmm. that was not boding very well, especially since my dad was uh, a Cuban guy, which of course, you know, machismo at the time was pretty, pretty common. Um, but it really was worse in the U.S. because when we came to the United States, in the, we went to California. I had no idea what color TV was. I never tasted a pie before. You know, obviously we didn't speak English. I was highly dyslexic, so all my grades were terrible in school. And I fixed that, by the way. And I'll tell you about how I did it later in the program. But it really was sort of being poor in the U.S. that was interesting because where I grew up, I was the only Hispanic guy. There was one black guy, and uh, you know, we had no money, and so. Whether or not it's growing in Venezuela, whether or not it was living in California at the time, poverty was very interesting. Hmm. And I remember one time, I was, I gosh, maybe nine or 10, and my mom put in me that my dad didn't love me because he wouldn't send money. So I equated love with money. Uh So in the beginning, I thought, well, I want all this love from my mom and I want all this love from everybody else. I'm going to go make some money, which was really interesting because it's the wrong motivation, by the way in my opinion, to actually pursue a lifestyle or riches. And then being dyslexic and you know speaking way too fast and English is my second language gave me a disadvantage, which I finally fixed by learning to speed read, which is really interesting. Mm. Interestingly enough, you continue to chase money, but clearly for different reasons. Well, it took me a while. It, it took me to lose my first fortune. So I was, so I went to college, dropped out, did a one year in law school, decided I didn't want to be a dick, so dropped out of that. <laughs> and then ultimately ended up starting to do network marketing, particularly in the beginning with multi-level marketing, you know, network marketing, like Amway type stuff. Yeah, right. I sucked at it because I had no friends. I was, you know, married with my beautiful and still current wife. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. So I get a job selling what was called computer ribbons at the time for a competitor was terrible. I mean, absolutely the worst at it. They fired me three times, but I still kept coming back because I wanted, you know, I wanted to have some money, right? But now I'm 35,000 in debt. You know, my my wife and I dropped out of law school. She's a teacher. I'm selling printer ribbons. And I thought, come on, man. If these guys, and they were all sort of like Alcoholic Anonymous, ex-drug addicts and all that kind of fun stuff. I'm like, if these guys can do it, you know, so can I. So I started reading as much as I could, started to speed read to fix the dyslexia, went to every seminar, uh, and then broke every record, ended up making 10,000 a month back, you know, in my mid-20s, 24, 25, 26. And then at 28, I got uh, fired because the owner and I didn't see eye to eye. And by then I have a one-year-old son, I've got a house, two cars, I'm still 35,000 in debt because nobody taught me how to freaking finance and, and, you know, and, and do numbers. And then I get fired and my wife says, great. And I was like, what do you mean great? She's like, this is fantastic. We can now start the company that you wanted to start. I said, okay, great. So she you know, sent the kid to my mom's, took me to get a business license, put me on the phone the very next day with no laptop to do what I knew how to do, which was to sell on the phone. And by age 31, I'm a millionaire. By age 36, I'm a decamillionaire, cash. So, so let's go back 
Marks, to that moment where your wife has said, this is great news and what a great woman. I'd like to talk about her later, but because I know she's had a huge impact on on where you are uh, now. But you said she prompted you to start a business that you'd always wanted to start. What was that business? Was it selling something in particular or was just the idea of having your own business was enticing? So we made a mistake, right? I mean, if we talk about mistakes, one of the mistakes that we made was we continued in the same business at that time which was printer ribbons and eventually toner cartridges. We should have done something entirely different. But fear, why? which one of my, why do something different? Because I think, you know, it wasn't a passion or a love. What I loved was really personal growth and development. And I think I loved interesting, challenging work, which is something that, that we do now, but it wasn't at the time. I didn't know what was available to me. I didn't know I could do real estate or mergers and acquisitions or private equity or, you know, certain, you know, consulting business. We just knew we had a mortgage to pay, which was a thousand bucks a month. But to us, it could have been a million dollars a month, right? Because mm-hmm. it just, it was a huge amount. So that's one of the things I've taught my kids, which is the two biggest decisions, because it is about making decisions in life are who you marry and what you do for a living. If you get those two right, you have an incredible life. If you get mm-hmm. them wrong, that's okay. You can fix them. You know, just go make the right choices. If you're in a bad marriage, go get a good marriage or fix the one you have. If you're in the wrong business, go get in the right business. And, you know, because that way you end up having a life where, as Ray Dalio would say, you struggle well, but it's enjoyable. And so as I grew my company to the Inc. 500 fastest growing company in America, you know, and making all these millions and stuff, I was really good at it, but I self-destructed at age 36 because I just wasn't happy. Before you go to that self-destruction period, you built that company up. So you, you get on the phone the day after you're fired, your wife gets a business license, you yeah. get on the phone to sell ink cartridges, to sell ribbons. And I've heard you say, actually, it it's not the most, you've acknowledged, it is not the most interesting of businesses. In fact, you say ink toner isn't a commodity, it's a service. What do you mean by that? So, you know, ink and toner is like toilet paper. Nobody really cares unless either A, you don't have any and you need some, or B, it breaks in your hands, Mm -hmm. right? So it becomes a very important piece when there's a crisis. But if there's no crisis, it's just taken for granted. Mm -hmm. So we we knew that in order for us to beat the scammers and the, because most of that business, unfortunately, at that time was built by a bunch of people that are telemarketers hiding on the phone and, you know, saying, hey, I'm going to send you the TV with the ribbons and, you know, who should I made out to? And, you know, my ribbon is the longest lasting. They could lie. And at the time, you know, the internet wasn't a big deal. So people would believe it. And it was, it was, it was, it's one of the reasons why I got fired because I just didn't like that line of, of selling. So we knew that in order for us to differentiate ourselves and go against Staples and Corporate Express and all these guys, we had to become a service oriented company, right? Because you know, there's only three things you got to be world class at: either operationally excellence, which drives lower cost, customer service, which is you know, sort of have it your way, or innovation, which is the latest newest product. Now, if you're an innovation company, most of your money goes in R and D. If you're a customer service company, most of your money goes into sales and marketing. If you are, you know, a cost cutting or, or the cheapest, you go into operational efficiency. So Walmart, for example, is operational efficiency, the cheapest one. Apple is customer service, which is why it's high price for great service. And then innovation would be Intel or, you know, whatever other company you have. Now, they all have these three aspects, but you got to pick one. We knew we couldn't have a lifestyle that we wanted 
in order and, and become the cheapest, you know, toner ribbon salespeople. And we knew we had zero innovation because we didn't control the product. So we only had one line to go down, and that's customer service and sales. So we became the absolute best in the planet at giving individuals the greatest experience when ordering ink and toner and what have you. We trained our guys and gals on how to influence, how to create positive emotions, how to anchor individuals, how to persuade, how to, you know, all these amazing things so that when the customer talked to us or thought about us, they had nothing but positive feelings. Then we thought strategically, look, we know that strategies, you know, I'm not that bright, so I have to simplify things. So for us, it's like, look, strategy is who's the enemy? What's the terrain? How do we win? So for us, the enemy was all these scammers and scumbags and my previous employer and all this stuff, right? Like it just gave us somebody to fight. And then what's the terrain is where we fight this. We fight this on the phone. We fight this in the desks. And then how do we win? Well, we got to get them to love us so that they're talking to their best friend, not a toner supplier. And we have to inundate that desk with tchotchkes, you know, little, you know, a screen wipe with our name on it, a candy jar. You know, we, we send four pound bags of M&Ms with every order on their desk. So we knew how to win. And we did, you know, pretty well, and we grew pretty fast. Just explain uh, the the science. I love the M and M story, and I've had a number of different, you know, career companies. When you get something delivered, have you know a, a Tim Tam or an M and M or something in there? You used them quite strategically, and the four pounds wasn't kind of. There's a reason for the amount, isn't there? Because when people poured them into the jar, or, tell that story. So you know, in the very beginning, when I worked for the other for the competitor, the guy I used to work for first. One of the vendors said, hey, let's do a spiff, you know, a, mo- a motivation. And they wanted to give the salespeople money. Well, I was of the point to forget us. I want the customer to have the spiff or the, the experience because they're going to keep on ordering. I'll make more money, right? You know, don't be short-sighted. So they suggested coffee with coffee mugs and all of this stuff. And at the time, I was in the leadership team. And I thought, I need something that is fun that people want to get all the time and that it makes noise and that it's visual. So I thought M&Ms, but it can't just be a little bag of M&Ms. It's got to be a big pound bag, a big four pound bag of M&Ms because when they pour it, it goes clink, 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 and it creates that Pavlovian dog response. Yeah, right. So what ended up happening is, is as I grew one stop and we grew the company, we would send them a glass jar with our name on it, big enough for about half the bag. And then we got the wiser, so they one bigger enough, bigger than the bag. And what happened was, is we would get calls that would go like this. Hey, I'm okay on the toner, but I need more M&Ms. So can you send me more of this toner? We're like, sure, right? And we, we get orders just because they want the M&Ms. And now here's psychologically one of the reasons why it's so powerful. When the person orders toner cartridges for their business, they are not typically the CEO, CFO, or a high-level C-executive. Usually, they're somewhere in the bottom of the barrel. Mm. Now, mind you, the product is mission critical. It is the lifeblood of the business. Without printing, no business work, even today in digital age. So it's a very important position, but it was given to usually a lackey. So what does this lackey not have? They don't have recognition. They're they're like, ugh, I got to order toner, blah. So what we did is we turned it into a privilege and a high status by putting M&Ms on their desk when they poured the M&Ms and the office heard the sounds, guess what happens? Yeah, they all come to them. Oh, you got the M&Ms. And now this buyer associates recognition, feeling of importance, all with us. And that's wow. one of the little things that we did in order to fight the low price from Staples and you know later on Amazon and what have you. 
listening to the award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Show, and we're chatting with printer, cartridge, decker, millionaire, Mark Acosta Rubio. Now, before he unveils more of his formula for success, a quick reminder about the ultimate marketing resources list I've created just for you. It contains all the software, hardware, and tools myself and past guests use to create marketing that gets results. There's a link to the transcription service I use, a link to some amazing video marketing training. You'll even find a review of the online payment processor software I use. I'm adding to it weekly. In fact, I added a couple this week. So be sure to bookmark your ultimate marketing resources list at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Now, back to Mark's. We're chatting with Marx Acosta Rubio. Marx, you're on the phone. You obviously started to employ as the business grew. Um, where did you get to? Because I know the business then hit a big hurdle, but like, how big did you grow that business before things started to go wrong? About 36, 37 million the first wow. time around. Over what period of time? From 1998 to 2005. Wow. How does it make you feel looking back? What the hell was I thinking? I should have been bigger. Really? Yeah, and we did it bigger even. So our sales guys outsold the competition five to one. Mm. So it took five of the competitor salespeople to outsell or to sell what one of our sold because that really was our secret sauce, right? Is we have this sales system that never fails. The challenge that I had and why I say we could have been bigger the first time because we got bigger the second time, by the way. But why we would have been bigger the first time is I spent too much time on the non-essentials, which, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, I don't blame myself. But had I stuck to, you know, and it took me a while to understand how to hire the right people and which we, we stopped hiring and started auditioning. And it wasn't until we started auditioning people that we ended up becoming faster and bigger. What's an audition look like versus a, a hire? Okay. So do you, do you play any instruments? I'm about to learn the guitar. Great. So when you're about to learn the guitar, let's say you already knew the guitar and you're forming a band and you have the guitarist, the keyboard, the bassist, but you need the drummer. How do you find the drummer? Uh, I don't know. I've never looked for a drummer. I would put, I'd certainly put an ad in the local laundromat because that feels incredibly cliched, but then I would ask the other band members. And what would you ask them? They said they they don't know anybody or they know somebody. When you have three or four candidates, how do you pick the right guy? I think what you I think your leading question is wants the answer that says um, we don't just want a drummer we want a drummer that fits in with the rest of the band. You want to audition the drummer, mm-hmm. so you bring in the guy who goes. Here's my resume. I went to Juilliard's and this and this, and you go. Don't Big care, deal. mate. Just play. Mm-hmm. So what happened in the beginning is we tried to hire people based on personality profiles from DISC, and we hired recruiters, and I spent so much money. And one day I thought this is stupid. Because I can tell who's going to be good, who's not going to be good based on hearing them on the phone. So I said, look, I'm going to bring in. So here's what we did. We put an ad in the local newspaper, you know, Craigslist, whatever. And we put a recording. And your, your listeners should absolutely copy this. And they have my permission and yours, I'm sure, to put it in, in effect into their business. And they're going to see a huge difference in how they hire people. So we put an ad. And then I said, hey, you know call this number and tell me why I should hire you. And I would, you know, tell them what the role is. You got to do this X, Y, Z, but call this number. So they call the number and it's a recording in our business. 
and it says, hey, this is Mark, thanks for calling. I really appreciate you very, very much. Hey, do me a favor, leave a message as to why you think you're the best candidate for this position. If I like what I'm hearing, I'll call you back. If not, best of luck to you. Boop, clean up the phone, right? So I get these messages and I get to then go through the messages, delete, 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 save, delete, 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 save. And then I call them back and say, hey, listen, thanks for calling, Tim. I really appreciate it. I think you've got a good shot. You know, I've got two openings, Tuesday at 10.30 or Friday at 10.30 and those are, or Tuesday and Thursday, depending on which week uh, we decided to do it on. And they go, oh, I can't make it those days at 10.30. Oh, mate, I'm so sorry. Best of luck to you. Oh, no, 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 I can send things around. Okay, great. And then what happens is you get five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people showing up at the same time. Now you've got this competition, nice. which is good. And then instead of interviewing them one by one, I put them all in the room and I say, hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. Here's the script. There's a phone. For the next hour, I want to hear you on the phone. You're not going to make a sale. I understand that. I just want to see how you perform on the phone, if you can get to the gatekeeper and how you respond to making phone calls. And then I just watch. And the guys that would pick up the phone, dial, hang up the phone, make a note on the piece of paper, they'll never make it. They're out. Mm -hmm. The one that leaves the phone in the ear and goes from one number to the next, pretty good chance. The one that wings it from the presentation and adds personality, that's the one we want. Right, because one of my mentors said, you know, good people aren't trained; they're found. So, you know, and, and I've done this for CFOs, for managers, for a lot of companies that I've consulted with. I've done it for all different varieties because you and I, you know, interviewing is one thing; doing the job is another. So, anyway, so long story short, I'm giving you the answers to why I think we could have been bigger because all these things we figured out later on, if we had learned them earlier, we could have been double the size first time around. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to finding out what you did even better second time around. We'll come to that. You hired a cocaine addict, not once, but twice, Marks. They ended up earning, according to you, $50,000 a month. Why did you hire them in the first place? So his name is Eric Landon. He's still a good friend of mine. Uh, it was a, a crack addict, not cocaine. So, you know, which is oh, like okay. a little rock, right? Which is way worse. And so in, in early in my career, before I figured out the audition, we've had three offices, you know, one smaller, bigger than really big. On the second office, you know, I, I got to work around 10, you know, and, and I have this interview and there's this guy named Eric. He's wearing a tie-dye shirt, you know, those like Grateful Dead shirts. He's wearing uh, shorts and some open sandals. And he has all that white stuff around his mouth when he talks in the corner of his mouth. And he says, I'm here for the interview. I said, okay, sit down. I talked to the guy and I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to hire this guy. I mean, look at him. You know, I'm, I'm wearing a suit and, you know, he looks like a bum. And so I said, hey, look, I'll let you know, you know, give me your number, I'll let you know. And I went about my day. The next day, I come to the office, and there's a sort of weird energy. And I walk to my particular office, and on the corner, what we call the incubator, where we used to train the people, there's this guy dialing. And so I was a bit shocked. I didn't hire him. I bring him to my office, and I was like, hey, bud, you know, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but I didn't hire you. And he says, yeah, I know. That's why I just came in. I was like, Okay interesting and then i said how do i get rid of this guy so i noticed that he had the same clothes he had on the previous day and i thought i said hey buddy according to california osha law i don't know what osha osh or whatever it stands for you can't have open shoes in the office you got to go home and change and don't be late because if you're late you can't work for me now i knew he lived about 45 minutes away so there's no way he's going to be coming back with shoes right but sure enough 
Before the hour, he shows up. He scratched his face. His hair is messed up. His shirt is torn. He's got blood on his foot. And he has socks on. And I was like, dude, what, what happened? He goes, well, I knew if I went home, I'd be late. You'd fire me. So instead, I went to my buddy John's house to get a pair of shoes. He wasn't home. So I jumped to the fence, but he has a dog. So I went to the doggy door. The dog bit me, attacked me. I finally got in the, in the, in the house. His shoes didn't fit. I put on socks. I left in the front door. I made it in time. So I said, okay, you know, if you're willing to go through that much hassle, uh, and he became the number one sales guy, and he taught me a very important lesson. He went for a county agency in California, and he made a he made an ethical mistake that ended up becoming advantageous for him and for us, which is he sent out a, a product that was a compatible versus the OEM, meaning a compatible versus the original equipment manufacturer where the margins were pretty darn good. And then when the customer got it, he complained, he sold to the customer on trying it. The customer tried it, the customer kept it, and then we became the number one supplier for that agency, for that county agency. And Eric retired a multimillionaire. He invested all the money that he made working for me into real estate. Now he lives a charmed life with his wife and kid, and he's 50-something. And he, oh, he works at the fish market at Whole Foods just so he's not bored. Oh, that's awesome. And he's clean. He's been clean. So, he, so he, he was clean working for me. Another part of the story is about a week later, he doesn't show up and I get a call from his wife panicking. He's in the hospital with a brain hemorrhage. And I said, hey, mate, I'm sorry. You know, hope you're okay. You know, hope you feel better when, you, when you're healing, come back. What I found out later was that he was going to get cracked from his dealer and his dealer pushed him off the stairs. He hit his head and he had a brain aneurysm. But because I didn't give his job away. He developed a loyalty to me that was unparalleled. And then when he got fell off the wagon many years later again, because you know he self-sabotaged him, I helped him go to rehab. He came back, finished, and then he retired. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, most of the employees we had were either drug addicts, alcoholics, or had been to jail, or you know, there were electricians that worked, you know, at supermarkets pushing cards. You know, they weren't high level individuals, if you would, because selling ink and toner on the phone did not attract you know, that MBA or that college graduate, right? It's a telemarketing job for us. I, I think what I'm loving about your story so far, Marks, is the fact that you really, you have a passion for growing things, whether they be businesses or people. You acknowledge that ink toner is boring, but it's that excitement of, of growing things that really turns you on. And, and having spoken to hundreds and hundreds of successful business owners over the last 11 years, you know, you ask them, what's that one thing that really pisses you off about running a business? And they say people, you know, it's not the the poor product or the, the marketing or the whatever it is, it's people. So clearly you've kind of cracked that nut and, and enjoy it. Seven years on, you make up to $36 million turnover a year. You're not happy with it, but then things start to fall apart. What led to your first demise? So, you know, it's, you're only two or three moves away from greatness. It's not 20 moves, 30 moves, 100 moves. It's just two or three. And the, I, I can trace back the worst advice I ever received in my business life ever was listening to somebody else who hadn't done it. So I joined a, a networking group and the guys in the group, some were really successful, some not so much, but the moderator, the guy that ran the group, his dad had built a company, made him sort of owner. They sold, he made like $7 million. He told me I had to get somebody between me and the sales guys, like a, a manager or a VP of sales. And my intuition said, no, man, you know, this is going great. 
we're entrepreneurial, you know, we're sort of like this Alexander the Great battalion against the odds, we're good. And I unfortunately succumbed to the opposite of my intuition. I did it. And I hired a woman who had worked in corporate America and I let her run the show. And I learned the difference between abdication and delegation. And, you know, she made every mistake in the book, but I, but I believe she was right because, you know, was, I wanted to be bigger in, in corporate America. Uh-huh. And that just led from one disenchanted employee to the next. And then I made some really poor choices in terms of how, of how I spent my time. But I remember the day where I knew it was the beginning of the end of that company. I was driving down from I this beautiful house in California. I still have it. Driving down in a custom-made Mercedes Benz with a racing engine. And here I am, a multimillionaire in my you know mid-30s, beautiful kids, beautiful wife. And I go to the office. You know, I've been you know Inc. 500. I've been in magazines and newspapers. And I was miserable. And I didn't even know it. I was like, where is my ticker tape parade? Where the frick is everybody clapping for my success? I'm the American dream, right? Hispanic, you know, sort of dyslexic, you know, not bright, bright boy becomes millionaire in America with beautiful wife and kids. And I didn't have any of that. So I decided at that point in time, subconsciously to, you know, screw things up. And I did. I knew every choice I was making was the wrong choice to make, but I just, I hated it. And I'm using the word hate. I hated going to the office and dealing with the people. You sabotaged both yourself and the business. Of course, you know, and, and subconsciously. This is why, you know, when I built it the second time, I did it very differently. But this is also why I tell my kids the two most important decisions you'll make in your life are who you marry, what you do for a living. And if we look back at our lives, you know, now I'm, I just turned 50, which I feel pretty young. But if you look back at our lives, we can almost pinpoint our unhappiness to those two pieces. Oh, I took the wrong job or oh, I was with the wrong person rather than. And if you look at your point of happiness, oh, I'm with the right person, and oh, I, I took the right job. Hmm. And, and I think so th- that's the common attribute of success and happiness, which it depends how you want to define it, right? So it depends on what success is to you, which you know varies. I used to think it was a million dollars in cash. When I got there, I thought it was 10 million. When I got there, you know, it was to your earlier question when we were chatting about what's enough and hmm. when's not enough. What is? Where is that point? I mean, I hear, some, I hear you say you're annoyed that you only got to $37 million. There's plenty of people listening to this show who are struggling to make it to half a million dollars, who are struggling to actually pay staff next month. Yeah, been there, done that more than once. Hmm. And some of my funnest times were in the very beginning when it was me and my wife and a couple, two or three guys, and we had, you know, used desks and, you know, partitions from the goodwill and phones that were donated it was just fun because we were we were we had a purpose a mission we were growing something mm-hmm. so i think i think the question is when is enough enough probably not the right question i think the right question to ask is are you doing what you want to do yeah and if the answer is no then it doesn't matter how much you make or what you get if the answer is yes then it doesn't matter how much you make how much you get you know, the, I know of happy people. I'm good friends with Richard Koch, right? The guy who wrote the 820 principle. And he's got another book coming out that's going to be an amazing book. And Richard's worth a little over half a billion dollars in pounds. Richard works an hour a day. He's, he's gay, so he lives with his uh, beautiful uh, soulmate, uh, Matthew, who's been around since forever. He has three homes. And, and, you know, Richard does exactly what he wants. He doesn't tolerate anything outside of what makes him happy for too long. And, you know, it took him a minute to get there, right? I have another mentor of mine who's 87, 
He's got kids now in their 60s and 50s and eight grandkids. Been with his wife, Robina, for, he lives in Australia, by the way. Wife, Robina, since they were, you know, I don't know, 19, 20, so 60 plus years. And Peter does what he wants to do. Now, Richard's life is very different than Peter's life. Richard works one hour a day. You know, he goes rides his bike. He plays tennis. He has conversations with, you know, friends. He has nice dinners. Peter loves to, you know, and, and, and Richard loves to write. Peter loves to, you know, donate to the Christian church and, you know, and, and go visit those kind of people and spend time with his wife and, and write, you know, different lives. But they're both very successful, not just because of money, but also because of they do what they do. I also know somebody who can't rub two nickels together, who is super happy. Because they're doing what they want to do, right? They work at a surf shack in, in uh, Hawaii, renting surfboards. Older than I am, loves it. Like Eric, you know, my, my millionaire ex-employee friend who goes to as a fishmonger in Whole Foods, even though he doesn't have to, because he just likes it. Likes it. Stay busy. You're listening to the Small Business Big Marketing Show, and we're chatting with Marks Acosta Rubio, who, having graduated from the slums of Venezuela, has gone from rags to riches to negative rags to more riches. Before we talk about you buying the business that you sort of drove into the ground, Marks, buying it back, just describe your life when you sold the first time, when things were really bad. You know, were you completely miserable? Was your wife alongside you saying, it'll all be okay? What was it like? So, you know, the the interesting thing is that no matter what the challenges have been, my wife has always been supportive. She, she, don't get me wrong. She likes the nice nice lifestyle, right? Traveling, all stuff. But, you know, as long as we're together, nothing else really matters. Hmm. And we are best friends. We we spend all the time together every single day. You know, we, we, I mean, we're disgustingly cute. We've been together 32 years, right? So we're disgustingly cute. But at the time, she was very supportive. And I think, you know, I, I picked the right spouse, thank God, you know. And I think she's always been super supportive. But it's difficult, right? Because we as entrepreneurs can be very, you know, mean and fear-based and all these components and make it difficult for those who love us. I think at the end of the day, what, what I didn't understand at the time that I do understand now is that it's not that big of a deal. You know, losing money is not that big of a deal. It, it's it's losing the things that matter most, love, health, friendship. And I know it sounds silly, especially somebody who can't make the payment, but I'll tell you the thing that changed for me is in the beginning, I lived my life based on principles and I became rich monetarily and was happy. When I stopped living my life based on principles, I lost it all and became miserable. When I went back to principles, I regained my wealth and I am wealthier now than I've ever been, but I'm also happier. Not without challenges, not without difficulties, not without problems. You know, we're humans. But I think it if we chase the money, like Jim Rohn, right, one of my mentors said, you know, you attract success, you don't pursue success. But I wasn't quite sure what the heck that meant. Like, what do you mean attract success, pursue success? Well, what he meant was become a principled person. Like in Ray Dalio's book, Principles, or you know, whatever book you know strives you, it's about how you apply certain laws. One of the guys that I, my mentor is 87 in Australia, I've never met anybody like him. And I try to figure out why is he so unique? And I finally figured out is that he has no gray area. So he believes what he believes 100% in conviction. And what he doesn't believe, he doesn't believe fully. So he is more concerned about what he will fail for than what he will succeed for. Example is, He'll never, uh, you know, betray the love of his wife for money. So that's not an issue for him. 
he will never compromise his Christian principles for money. So it makes life very simple and it gives him a certain sense of confidence that I've yet to attain because I still struggle with, was that the right choice? Is that the wrong choice? Which principle am I going to use? You know, whereas he doesn't have that. He hadn't had that for a long time. And he built, of course, an incredible fortune, a great family life. So I think if we think about living based on principles or rules, whatever you want to call it, everything else takes care of itself. An example. So in the very beginning, when the company was struggling the first time around, I couldn't really keep my CFO and I couldn't keep this individual, that individual, but my ego got in the way. So what did I do? I kept them. So I started, you know, sort of diminishing my savings at a very rapid rate. You know, I, I wanted the ideal of the ego of the image I thought I had built rather than going, hey, guys, I got to let all you guys go. I got to move this. You know, I make the tough choices. And so now when I started making the tough choices, everything started to come into play in a much better way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. It does. So, Mark, you sold the business in 2005. How long after did you buy it back and why did you buy it back? So we bought it back because they had the new owners had taken it to the ground and I wanted to buy the assets to do it again. And so we did. I mean, and it's, it wasn't that difficult because it wasn't worth very much. Mm-hmm. You know, in my business, the assets are just sort of client list in the names of individuals, right? So that was it because it's better to buy those assets and start over again. Just so I understand, you, when you sold it, I thought you'd run it into the ground. Did the, the new owners run it further into the ground, did they? Yeah, it was a time that we sold. It was really more, it wasn't so much a sell as it was. I had borrowed money and I couldn't pay them. So I just gave them the business. Yeah, okay. Okay. Right. And so we call that a sale, but it really wasn't a sale. It was more like a foreclosure. And then later on, when they ran into the ground, I just said, hey, look, I'll give you this much for the assets. Nice. So what did you do differently this time in order to get it to what level of success? So I learned big clients, good, small clients, bad, lots of employees, bad, little employees, good. So we changed the model to let's go get some really big accounts and let's have as little employees as we possibly can. And also, you remember that I was, I had been betrayed by a bunch of employees at that time. So I was still butthurt and I still didn't want to you know, deal with individuals and I was resentful and I was hurt and you know, all these negative emotions. But I ended up working in disguise and I ended up not having an office. I did everything remotely. I outsourced as much as I could. I had consultants that would bring in big business. And luckily for us, the business was all in net terms, meaning, you know, you pay the supplier after you've delivered the product so we can collect first, pay second. So you can never have negative cash flow unless you overspend on, you know, silly stuff. And so instead of getting, you know, these accounts that do, you know, couple thousand bucks a year or a couple hundred bucks a month or a couple thousand bucks a month. We got accounted to millions a year. And that was a big shift. So this is in a time now. So we're in the late 2000s, the noughties, I think they were called, weren't they? And you are running a business. The internet's now a thing. It ain't going anywhere. You are running a remote business. Are all your staff working from home? Pretty much, yeah. There's, I mean, we've had offices here and there, but not really for the staff, just maybe for me, or maybe we had a training center at one point in time, you know, trying new things. But at the end of the day, it's all remote. And it's not, this is very much, uh, it's, you see, you don't have a shop front. You, no. it sounds like it's not an e commerce play. 
It is not. It's not. So help me here. How do you, and you love growing people. This sounds like a very virtual business. How, how are you applying these foundational principles that you love around growing people and, and, and growing a business when everyone is working remotely? So you, you find, you, you devote your time finding the right individual, not trying to change people, right? You know, Jim Rohn once famously said, you know, you can't change people, they can change themselves. So, you know, one of the things that happened along the way after I lost my first fortune and started to rebuild it is I had all these friends. We used to have these huge parties in my house, celebrities, right? And, you know, and I, I won't mention their names, but big time celebrities that you've heard of and you know. And then when we lost our fortune, they all disappeared, right? We had no friends anymore. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. We're like, you know, that's, that's a little bit butthurt. So I, as we built it back up, a guy who'd been a friend of mine for a very long time said, wow, look, you're, you're doing well again. Hey, would you mind coaching me? And I had learned at the time that there's, you know, there was three principles to business, strategy, team building, and sales, right? And that's the, the role of the CEO. So I took on this kid. He paid me $10,000 a month to help him with his business at his bequest. I didn't, was not planning on doing it. And for the first 12 months, I produced zero results, nothing. And I was like, dude, stop paying me. Like, you know, like I, I take the money. I don't need the money, but stop paying me. He goes, no, I believe in you. I believe in you. And one day we had a conversation and we did what I call V2GP2. It stands for vision, values, goals, principles, and price. You know, what's your vision? What are your values? What are your goals? What are your principles? I want to pay that price. So we went through this conversation. At the end, there's a long pause. He realizes he's not willing to pay the price. Now, the price isn't working 20 hours a day. The price was, are you going to bear pain emotionally, handle rejection, tell your employees the truth, right? It's really all mental. And he paused and said, no. And I said, well, you've got two choices. Either you can minimize your goals or maximize your skill. Which would you like? And so he goes, no, I really want those goals. I said, well, then we've got to add a fourth component to the role of the CEO, which is mindset, then strategy, then team building, then sales. And so along the way, I picked up a bunch of clients organically, but this then forced me to apply the same principles I was teaching these guys and gals onto my staff. And then I realized that in order for me to do that, to both grow my company and grow the coaching and consulting, I couldn't be babysitting. So I thought, well, you know, what, what really matters? And if I gave you a high-performing athlete versus a low-performance athlete, when you go to the low performing athlete, you'll develop, you'll basically spend a ton of time for very little return. But if you go to the high performing athlete, it's the opposite, little time for high return. So I kept looking for, you know, who are these freaks of nature that are monomaniacal and have what Richard Koch would call a 20% spike. So the shift in business was, before it was, give me your, you know, your worst of the worst and I'll turn it into a superstar. And I did, but it was a lot of effort. And then at the end of the day, you can change the leopard's, you know, spots. I got betrayed. They, you know, they treated me poorly when things got difficult instead of hanging out with me because that's just who they were and still are. But the second time around, I wanted the individual whom I didn't have to put too much effort. But if I gave them one thing, they would be elated and go for it. And that was a big difference. So remote management is not difficult if you find the right person. And the only way to find the right person is to cast a wide net and audition them. In order to find these rock stars, you are casting a wide net and you are still auditioning, or be, you're not in the same office, but you, you're putting them through the, the, the ropes, if you like. Yeah, and then one thing is we train them very uniquely. We, we, and I've done this with all my clients, is we go ahead and we say, look, here's the manual. 
here's the first week of what you have to do with the key metrics, second week, all the way to the 90 days. If by day 91, you haven't hit all these key metrics, don't bother working up day 92. You're, you're not, you're fired. But as long as you can do these things, you're going to make a lot of money and be great. So they self-teach and, you know, not everybody makes it. Some people quit the second day, some quit the second, you know, month two into it, but very little of my time because it's already systematized. And then those who want to do it and are driven to do that job, whatever that job is, will self-train. You know, training isn't for training people. Training is there to find the right individual. People yeah. think, I'm going to go train them. Well, you can have some of that, but, you know, if, if you've got it, you know, Jim Rohn said, if you've got an idiot and you're motivated, you now have a motivated idiot, right? So training isn't necessarily what people think it's for. Training is to find out who are the 20% and then who are the 80%. Or for Jack Welch, who are the 20, who are the 70, and who are the 10? Mm. What's that great saying? What if I train my staff and they leave and someone says back to that person, what if you don't train the staff and they stay? Yeah, that's an old Zig Ziglar quote, right, which uh, Zig used to use for selling. I don't agree with that. I've, I've heard you not agree. You, in fact, I'll sort of paraphrase something you said in another interview that I heard you in, which was you said that the Tim Ferriss model, which is the four-hour workweek type model, even the Michael Gerber model of set it and forget it. And you did mention systems and processes before, but you said they're all bullshit. Why, why, why is that? Well, so if you if you read Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Workweek, which I've read multiple times, by the way, I mean, it's a great book. But he all he talks about, you know, you've got to add something to do, right? It's automation, but you can't just sit in a hammock. And you know, I, I know a guy who I won't name mention his name, but he's a marketing guy, you know, who read the eighty twenty principle and then really took it to heart, and then ended up going pretty much broke and having to redo all the things because he understood the eighty principle wrong. So. And, and Ferris's answer to his 28-year-old self was, I hate what I'm doing. I'm going to automate it. The internet's new. I'm going to drive that component. Now, Michael Gerber is broke. He can't run a business to save his life. He doesn't have yeah. two nickels to rub together, right? So here, you know, and now Tim is the opposite, right? Tim developed great relationships, and he was sort of at a time in his life where he, he capitalized on a wonderful wave. And he is the grandfather of the sort of mobile lifestyle. So I love his book. But people misinterpret it. And it's bullshit because if you if you draw three circles, right, top, middle, and lower, and you write a circle and then a line to the next circle and then a line to the third circle, and then on between the second and the, and the third, between the bottom circle and the middle circle, you drew two lines and two little circles. That's where content and process reside in any business. But the bottom circle is results. The second circle is behavior. And the, the top circle is belief. Belief drives behavior, behavior drives results. Content and process only aid that. This is why the government's so scribble, why bureaucracies are so messed up, mm -hmm. because they try to fix the content and process. But if the belief and the behavior are dysfunctional, you just get more dysfunctional behavior. So yes, systems are important, but they're not more important than a saga, right? They're not more important than a code of conduct. They're not more important than the individual who has the right ability to get the job done. You know, you, you can hire a, you know, a kid to put the fries in and when the, the bell goes, bring, take out the fries. I mean, any, anybody can do that, but try that in sales, try that in marketing, try that in finance. Mm. You know, who are we kidding? So it's that our systems are great because we know it only works with the right belief and the right behavior. If the belief and the behavior are wrong, the system will uncover them and spit them out. Marks, I've, I've loved your story. Life's good now, which is good to hear. 
You've got Bank. three businesses. You've still got the Ink Toner business, right? We have the Ink Toner business, yes. We have an Amazon business now, and then we have a consulting business. What's the Amazon business, just out of interest? So there's a, a buddy of mine, a partner of mine, another rags to riches story. You know, he was the founder of Herbal Ecstasy, ended up making a fortune on Amazon. And we partnered together. We bring people in. They pay $50,000 know, for us to do their listing for them and then 10000 a month to grow it. But we just started a sort of online course where somebody can pay, uh, I think it's 5800 US dollars, 5800 US dollars at veryamazon.com. And they will teach them how to make money on Amazon and you know all the kind of fun stuff because there's a huge recession coming. I'm sure you know. Yeah, well, so we're told. It's coming. It's going to come after the election. And this isn't me making this up. This is Ray Dalio, you know, worth $18 billion, right? Saying it's coming and it could be really bad. It could just be like a 1930 depression. Mm -hmm. So we know that in order for us to, to have a, because remember, I've been there before, is one thing I've created was multiple sources of income. I also own a bunch of little companies, piece, not entirely, but a little piece here and there to diversify within my skill set. So Amazon is probably going to increase during the depression and recession because it's driven by products and convenience and low cost and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. So we're giving individuals who would like to have a multiple source of income the ability to do so without paying huge fees. And does those, do those individuals need to come to you with a pre-existing product to sell on Amazon or you help them source that as well? We help them source that. In fact, that's one of the first things we have to focus on. You know, people get enamored with their, with their gadget. Like, oh, I, I invented this gadget midget widget. It's going to be the best thing in the world. And of course it's not, right? So mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're trying to teach them, look, you can do that. Go ahead and do that. But be cash smart first. Pick a product that will sell so you can make some money. Then do your widget, midget, gidget thing, right? Because this isn't this is the true Tim Ferriss thing, right? This mm -hmm. is where I would say if Tim Ferriss was going to write the book again today, it would be on Amazon. He would talk about how to do Amazon, and then you can because you know we know how to automate Amazon because Amazon does most of the stuff for us. I, I look at those Amazon businesses, and I've interviewed a number of successful e-commerce players out of Australia, and. I can't help but think, and I'm, I'm, so, I'm not one to think that, yeah, every marketplace is crowded, therefore you shouldn't enter it. But gee, when I hear Amazon and when I hear about a business like yours that's helping individuals source products for a hungry and identify a hungry market and then go out and market it, I don't, I don't know. It just, seems, it just seems like that ship has left the shore. What am I missing? Oh, a lot. So I'll, I'll tell you the first story. When, when Shaheen and I talked about Amazon, he said, look, man, you should get involved in Amazon. This is years ago. I was like, dude, I'm doing okay. I don't need Amazon. He goes, no, no, no. It's, it's the future it, ink and toner. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to put my ink and toner. He goes, no, 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 do something else. I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll, you teach me, I'll do it. And if I don't make at least 20 grand on something per month, I'm not interested in it. So I said, look, we got to make at least 20 grand. He goes, okay. And then he goes, well, we're going to pick a different product. And I said, no, 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 we're going to do it with ink. A little, a little inkjet, a $14 inkjet, a two pack cost me five bucks, sold it for 14 bucks. He goes, no, man, you're picking the wrong product. I said, dude, it's the only product I really know. Let's just do this. So sure enough, he didn't want me to do the product. I did the product. He said it was a race to the bottom. We became number one. I ended up making $25,000 a month for many years. I hired a guy outsourced in Pakistan, really smart guy. I paid him about a thousand bucks a month to manage my account. And I rode that sucker for years. It just died last year because the Chinese increased the cost because the, the supply became so high and minimized the cost. It wasn't worth it for me. That probably could have made five, six, seven thousand a month. 
but it wasn't worth it for me. Mm-hmm. So Amazon is interesting because you can monetize a variety of different products. Once you understand the Amazon algorithm and once you understand the formula, you can be an Amazon seller that has multiple listings and you diversify, right? They, Ray Dalio's big claim to fame and the reason why he's the most successful hedge fund manager in the world is he knows how to diversify. Well, we believe the same thing in Amazon, right? You've got this product that does really well in this season, this product does really well in that season, this product does well overall. And so we teach that to you. So it's really about, and, and you know, if you have 10 products, each one makes you a thousand bucks and you're now making 10 grand and you have tons of competition, but you're okay because you've got 10. You've got, you know, and we have literally hundreds of products on Amazon, right? And I mean, millions and millions and millions of dollars a year in sales and nobody knows it. And now the guys that teach the courses out there, because we've, we've done them all, they're pretty crappy, right? They're just feel good courses, you know, and then they just, people buy it and they go, oh, yay, they do nothing with it. What we put together is very different because obviously we want people to make money and it's really like behind the scenes here's what's really going on here's how the russians game the system here's what the chinese game the system which is very different here's how you're going to make real money here's how to identify a product here's the websites you go to we let it all hang out because our model is as follows we'll sell about a thousand of these courses and we're going to shut it off and then within those thousand people we're going to find those who are just have a knack for it. Not the guys making a couple thousand bucks a month. And then the guys that are now going to do hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales. And then we're going to partner with them, take them to the next level, own a piece of their company and diversify once again. That sounds like a conversation for another time to me, Marks, because it's one that I haven't had on this show. And I think it's a pretty interesting one. People can find you. I think you mentioned that course. Was that veryamazon.com? Yeah, veryamazon.com. They could just go, they're interested in it. And if you want to contact Marks or find out more about what he does, you can call Marks.com. That's your main website. Marks, thank you, mate, for reaching out through your Ashley, who who put us in touch. Uh, great fellow, and uh, really glad you He's did great. it. I don't quite understand why you did this interview because you've given a lot, and maybe you're now in that legacy stage of life where you just want to share your information. But for whatever reason, I'm I'm very grateful. Well, I'll tell you why, if you want to hear the answer, it's really short. I have an allergic reaction to 99% of the people who are out there teaching personal growth and business because it's just full of shit. And, you know, I won't mention any, any names. You can decide who fits that model for you. But for me, it's about, look, I've been a martial artist most of my life. And I, I learned that truth is found in combat. And I think a lot of people out there have this wrong idea. You know, they, they get the black belt to Taekwondo and then some, you know, bum, picks a fight and then they lose the fight from a guy that has no skill set. Well, because they didn't learn how to really fight. And business is not that it's a fight, but you got to understand how business really works in order to succeed in it. And so for me, it's like, look, I'm not famous. You know, I don't have a huge following. None of this stuff is, is uh, in my realm. But for if I ever get a chance to go on a podcast or have a chat and just drop a nugget or drop a little piece of advice that might somewhere help somebody go, you know what? Me too and there's hope, then to me, it's worth it. it. It was done for me. I've had plenty of mentors who have given of their time for me that I wouldn't be here if not for them and still have them. Well, you've done that, Mark. So thanks, brother. Thank you. I appreciate you. Well, there you go, team. Mark's Acosta Rubio. Coming up, the penny drops for this week's Monster Prize Draw winner around how to personalize his marketing. Plus, I get my backup following an email I received from the host of an Airbnb I stayed at recently. But right now, here's what grabbed my attention from chatting with Marks. 
Attention grabber number one. Stop spending time on the non-essentials of your business. I love that. Focus on what you're good at and outsource, hand over, delegate, delete, all the other stuff that you just shouldn't be doing. You, my friend, are a precious asset to that wonderful business of yours. Attention grabber number two, instead of hiring staff, audition them. I like that. Put them through the ropes and audition them. Have some fun. Says something about your business and your brand, I reckon. And attention grabber number three, it's a little bit controversial. Big clients are good. Small clients are not so good. You know, Clients are precious, no matter what their size, but certainly if you're a small business owner, getting one big client is kind of a good thing. It can bankroll, cash flow, a lot of the things that you want to do. Well, that's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, be sure to block out some time and implement it. Come on down. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Oh, yes, indeed, Lee Doodly. It is time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. And today's winner is... Joel Keane of Botigo.com. B-O-A-T-I-G-O.com, which looks to be a share economy-based idea for boat owners and people who want to have fun on boats. Not a bad idea. I'm liking that. And Joel says, hey, Timbo, just ordered the Boomerang Effect. That's my book. And can't wait to get stuck into that bad boy. Thanks heaps for the podcast. We are launching a new business and have already implemented a number of ideas you've shared. Loving your work already, Joel. One was to dig deep into understanding what problems you are solving for your customers. Well, that's a great thing to learn. I'm I'm honoured to have imparted that to you, Joel. Anyone else listening, if you haven't gone and sort of sat down and gone, what problems do my customers and prospects have that I can solve, then do it and then factor that into your marketing messaging. Joel goes on to say, plus the tip you provided about having custom landing pages for all the different customers and areas you are targeting. What a great way to keep it personal for those that click on your ads. Yeah, that's that's just mission critical to be able to do that. The more you can personalize your marketing, the better outcomes you're going to get. Anyway, mate, keep up the great work. I look forward to listening to many more marketing gems that we can implement. Kind regards, Joel Keen from Botigo.com. Joel, for going to the trouble of letting me know, or for listening to my show and letting me know that you're actually implementing ideas, you have won a $75 flora and fauna voucher, a $50 sandal voucher, a $100 lumber punks voucher, some boxing gloves from Fitness Enhancement, Lyre's range of non-alcoholic spirits, full range, over 500 bucks worth, an eight-pack of Mr. Lee's noodles, Jeff Anderson's video marketing course, a $100 voucher to buy some tradies undies. You've been promoted on this show. You get a backlink in the show notes. What more can you ask for? Everyone else, if you haven't entered the monster prize draw, please do. Send me an email, tim at timreid.com.au. Just tell me one idea that you have implemented as a result of listening to this show. And if I read it out on air, you win. Okay, so last week I stayed at an Airbnb and it was really good. It was so good that I left them this review. And I quote, a very cute cottage in a great location. 
The host's home contained everything we required with a well-stocked kitchen and bathroom. However, the beds were a little uncomfortable, though, which made sleeping difficult. That said, I suffer from sciatica, so I need a very firm bed that doesn't move around. Overall, a great experience and will certainly recommend to others. Now, I don't know about you, but that felt like a reasonable review. It was honest. It was there to help others with back issues so that they can decide whether it's right for them. That's what a review's about. It's not meant to be glowing. It's just meant to be honest. That's what I thought. So then I get an email back from the owners of the Airbnb, and it read like this. Hi, Tim. We are disappointed with your review. re our beds which are very expensive, silly, posturespedic beds. Oh, hang on. Reviews like yours are most punishing to hosts. The previous reviews to yours and many others state how comfortable our beds are. We know such things are somewhat due to personal taste. Yeah, they are. You're right. But we thought you should know the impact of your review. As a result of your review, our listing will now be negatively impacted in the search engines. We ask you for the benefit of future hosts that you think and write more carefully next time you use Airbnb. An award of four stars is punishment. (laughs) Now, I am reading this because I think it's funny, but I also think there's some marketing learnings here. And the learning is, I think that email back to me is just ridiculous. First of all, if they wanted to respond to my review, they should have done it in the actual review section of their Airbnb listing. That would be the smart thing to do to show that they are onto it. I notice they don't respond to any people's reviews, good, bad, or indifferent. It's just a good thing to do. It's very transparent. Secondly, reviews aren't there as a way for someone to say how glowingly good your product or service or offer is all the time. If it is, awesome. And I think I kind of said that, but don't get your back up if someone says something, you know, negative about what you have to offer. I thought I was being constructive, certainly for future people who may want to take on that Airbnb. I have interviewed a fella about four years ago, Jay Bayer, who wrote a fantastic book called Hug Your Haters. I'll put a link in the show notes to that interview. If you want to learn how to manage people who don't necessarily like everything you do, then I encourage you to read that book. Um, If you are a business that's seeking reviews, and I hope you are, then go out there, seek them, good, bad, or indifferent. If they're awesome reviews, thank the people who left them. If they're critical reviews, thank the people who left them and say you may well address them or give them reason as to why you're not addressing. But don't send an email like these guys did. Anyway, I'll now get off my high chair. Before we wrap things up, just a reminder that you'll find plenty more episodes on the Podcast One Australia app, plus my entire archive full of ideas to grow that beautiful business of yours is over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. If you're getting value from listening, and I'm pretty sure you are, then don't keep it a secret. Be sure to let other business owners know about it. Next time we catch up with the founder of Bonjoro, my favorite client engagement app. Some awesome business tips in that interview. This podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reed, produced by Matt Dwyer. Until next week, thanks so much for tuning in. Now get out there and take action. <laughs> <laughs>